Andy. So Andy and I have known each other like decades. We have. Decades, decades. We and um, I just wanted to introduce him because he's probably my, one of my best buddies. And um, really excited to see what you're going to do tonight. Um, he also was the guy I learned to go out on the streets with and do prophetic stuff because it was amazing. Because if you can imagine me standing next to him, I'd go up to somebody and say, oh, I've got a word for you. The amount of words I got right were unbelievable because they'd look at me and they'd look at him and go, oh, flip. Yeah, okay, I better accept that. <laughs> it was really funny. Yeah. That was power evangelism. Yeah, it was power evangelism by force. Um, but it was really great. So looking forward to seeing what Andy's doing. Andy, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, um, so I'm Andy. I was um, married to Joanna. He's here, over there. Um, I was... <laughs> hey? Was married, you just said. No, I am married. <laughs> Did I say was? No, I am married. Awkward yeah. moment, everybody. Yeah. I didn't do the washing up, that's why. <laughs> the, the, um, I am married to Joanna, sorry. Um, I was part of um, St. Andrew's Chorley Wood, and we were sent out many, many years ago to be part of the team that planted Soul Survivor Watford, which we were there for, since the beginning. Um, Fun and then, times. So great, great times since we were very, very small. And then, uh, then I was in business for a number of years. And then a, a little while ago, since God's call to ordination, so sort of stepped out into that. And now I was a, I was a curate at uh, St. Mary's in Luton, and Adrian was uh, ordinary with us there. And I'm now vicar of St. John's in Hatfield, not too far away. That's yeah, great. and you went on that with somebody we know here. So, Laura, yeah, Laura, I, I, you, we were on the same bap. Do you remember? I know, I just saw you and thought, hey, that was a long time ago. Right, here we go. My name's Andy, as you've heard. Um, so I'm a vicar. Um, and what I'd love to talk about tonight is this whole subject of science and faith. Um, it's something, I don't know what, you, what it was like for you at school when people said, right, we're going to do science or whatever. Sometimes, most people go, oh no, I don't, I don't understand that, and sort of shrink away. And um, so tonight, if that was you, don't worry, I'm going to try to make this really, really, really accessible. Um, I have a degree in physics, I have a degree in theology. There we go, that's it, oh no. So, I'm not going to have any equations, well not many equations up anyway. Um, and... Um, you know, this entire, a long, long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I did, uh, I did, phys- I did physics at Bradford University. My, I've always been a little bit of a geek. Um, my kids delighted in telling me that and reminded me of that. Just to give you, for example, um, I was here. That is a place called Daresbury, up in, the, up in Cheshire. It's, I had a lot of fun there doing my final year project, playing with lasers and all what have you. Um, I was never really brought up in the church. I became a Christian at the age of 16. I was always, always, always interested in science. And one of the things that really grabbed me ever since the first, you know, I really first gave my life to the Lord was, okay, I had the experience of God and sort of I believe what scriptures say, but, you know, is, is this stuff really, really true? You know, does, you, know, what, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going around with science saying, yeah, 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 you know, it's okay, but, you know, science is where it's at. And so really, right from the very word go, I sort of set out just to really look into what I learned in physics, what I've learned as a Christian, and what I'm hoping tonight to share with you is just some of the thoughts as to why I believe it is absolutely compatible to be a Christian and to be a scientist as well. And I hope in this next you know, few moments we have together to sort of explain a little bit of why that is. So, has science disproved God? That's the title tonight. Why are we sort of having this discussion? Well, um, let me push these forward here. There we go. So it's very interesting to ask the whole question, why is there at, at, at all a debate about science and faith? What is it the scientists have got against God? 
you know, what is it, you know, that, um, and what can science say about life, the universe, and everything? Because some people like to try to say that if you really, really want the answers to what's going on, don't look in religion, look in science. It's a complete load of rubbish, I think, but um, I'll explain that a little bit more, a bit more later on. And part of the reason why we're having this discussion is because of this fella, a guy called, uh, a guy called Richard Dawkins. Everybody heard of him? Yeah, most people do. He's been brilliant at publicising himself as the high priest of atheism. Whenever we really seem to turn on a television which wants to debate, you know, science and Christianity, you know, Dawkins normally, um, normally, normally pops up. I remember once um, when I was, um, I used to be in business and I used to travel around the world and uh, there's this thing on BBC Worldwide called Hard Talk and uh, usually it was on at some sort of dodgy times of the night and I remember I think I was in Hong Kong this time, I couldn't sleep, it was about two in the morning or something and I turned it on and it was Richard Dawkins and he was really pontificating and basically what he was trying to say was, Look, you know, look, science has, look how many answers science has got. Look how backwards religion is. Therefore, ditch religion, just, tr- just trust science. And, and really what he's trying to actually sort of to leave his hearers with the, word, with, the, with the thought is this. If you really, really, you know, want to believe in God, you first of all have to turn off your brain. So really the first thing I'd love you to do is to, a little question to warm you up, is to think, turn to the people next to you and just think of this question and discuss, do you think in order to believe in God, you have to turn off your brain? Have about a minute and then let's have a little bit of feedback. That's a great debate. So what do we just wanted to shout out, what, what do you think? Do you have to turn off your brain in order to believe in God? No, why, why not? Everything leads towards God, that's one answer, that's great. What else do people think? How about over here? Something else has to be turned on, i.e. faith. That's great. Any, any other? Let's have one final one. It can be easier to turn our brain off than to face up to big questions. That's great. What a, what a great thought. So, bearing in mind all of that, why is it that clever people, people like Dawkins, he is a professor after all, and there's various other people, seem to say, you know, you, 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 we have to, you know, Belief in God is somehow unscientific. Well, just to lay a little bit of foundation, the first thing to understand when we have these, um, these discussions is that the debate is very, very rarely about the facts. It's very, very rarely the fact that uh, you know, a scientist stands up and says, I have incontrovertible proof that God isn't there or anything like this. They try to sort of spin their story another way. And the way they try to do, the, the first thing they normally try to um, appeal to is something which, which uh, sometimes philosophers call special pleading. What that means to say is, hey, I'm a clever person and I'm telling you that this is all a load of rubbish, therefore believe me. You know what I mean? It's sort of what they're sort of inviting you to do. I remember when I was at school back in the, uh, back in the Middle Ages, as it were, the... Um, you know, one of my friends, he got punished for something that he, he, he absolutely swore blind he didn't do. Anyway, when he went home and told his dad, protesting to his father, his father said basically, well, if the teacher thought you deserved it, you probably did, to which he was absolutely, completely and totally indignant. But there's a little bit of that thinking in what people like Dawkins and, and co. appeal to. What they like to try to say is, hey, forget about the, forget about the actual the detail, Believe me, trust me, I'm a scientist, it's all a load of rubbish. And actually, that is an illogical, and it's actually a dishonest um, mode of argumentation. Because the converse of that is there are many, many, many 
sort of clever active scientists who passionately believe in God and in Jesus Christ. And, you know, we, the other problem also is that usually when we have these, debate, that they, these debates, they're sort, of, you know, they're sort of conducted, I think, at the sort of the Daily Mail or News of the World level. It's very finger-pointy. It's sort of big headlines, and everybody sits in their corners and put, lobs, a, you know, lobs sort of a little, a little grenade over. And very, very rarely do people start looking at, you know, what, what really is the actual um, um, the case. So, as we go into it, what is the argument of people like Dawkins? At the heart of it, what people say is this. If you look around you, as we look around us now, what do we see? We see, we see technology, we see metal, we see the material, we see glass, we see light and all this stuff. We see the material world. We have invented electricity, radio and computers. We have split the atom and looked out to the edge of the universe. And all this is because of science. All this is because of the cleverness of human beings. And because we are all so clever and we've done all these things, we really don't need God anymore. God was from a bygone age. God is a product of when people didn't understand stuff. And when people didn't understand stuff, they came up with this explanation, ah, it is God. And people called this the God of the gaps. It was useful to explain stuff that people didn't understand. And what people like the Dawkins and Deb, Daniel Dennett and people like that will say is, now because science is, is progressing so much further and we, low and, we, and we know a lot more than we used to, the gap that God used to occupy is a lot smaller than it used to be. And they'll try to tell us, you know, as we carry on, that gap will go smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually it disappears altogether, given enough time. Therefore, why don't we just cut our losses and say, let's ditch the idea of God now. It's an inevitability. And the problem with that, really, like I say, is this whole discussion happens in this tabloid way. They try to say this, and very, very rarely do we get down into, okay, let's unpack what you're really saying. Let's get down under the covers, as it were, into the engine of your argument. Because really, what they play on is a lot of misconception about faith, and they play on really on people's misconceptions about science as well. So the first thing really to understand is, when we come to it, is, so, science and faith, what exactly is science? Is science there to help prove that everybody else is dumb? Some people like to put it away like this. When I was a student, when I, was a, when I went to student parties, and you were sort of like, a, this was in my first year before I met Joanna, of course, who is still my wife, and... Um, I was, um, you know, and you sort of, you were there, sort of, you know, interested in, in, in somebody of the opposite, uh, the opposite gender, as it were, and you wanted to say, you know, say, let's sort of get to know each other. You'd say, hi, hi, great to meet you. Yeah, oh, great, yeah. My name's Andy. Oh, really? What are you studying? I said physics, and that was the end of the whole thing. It is a terrible line to pick up girls. I can tell you that. And. And the thing is that really when you say, you know, I did, I, I did physics, whatever, people tend to go, oh, my word, I was never very good at that. You know, I never really understood that. Oh, dear, dear. And it seems to be difficult. And because it's difficult, often we avoid trying to engage with it. The second thing is, yes, it's difficult, but the second thing is that actually science in this day and age has been put on a pedestal. It's been put up there, you know, to say, you know, everybody says, oh, but with enough time, scientists will... 
sort it out. And that's really, again, another misnomer. It's actually another false argument. Because, because actually, you know, to quote one very famous scientist, a guy called Richard Feynman, who was one of part of the, uh, the guys who split the atom, his thing says is that he went into science thinking, it will have the answer, I will open the door and I will find an answer. But in reality, he said, what happens is, I came to science, I opened a door, and I found another corridor full of doors. And, and that is very much what it is. It always begs the next question and the next question and the next question. And contrary to what the media like to say, science does not have the answers to everything. Science is about knowledge. It's about investigation. It's about acquiring knowledge. It's about taking stuff that we observe, integrating it with other stuff, and getting new theories about how the world and the universe works. It's about gathering evidence that's testable, observable, measurable, repeatable. It's falsifiable, i.e. could able to disprove as well as prove things. It's about observation and experimental. It's about building and testing mathematical models to see whether the universe behaves in the way we think it it would. The reason why a few years ago people felt that they'd um, discovered the Higgs boson, the God particle, was not because they held up a test tube and there was a little particle that said God on it or something and said, here it is, guys, take a look at it. It's because they did these complex experiments in the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, which cost like about $5 billion to build. You know, it's an absolutely huge piece of kit. And because they had some basically squiggles on a line that were there, you know, in line with the theory, they reckoned to the satisfaction of most people that found it. They never actually saw it. All they really saw was a squiggle on a line. But that is the sort of thing that um, scientists try to find. It's a mathematical model. So the first problem that we come up against is that when we think about scientific method, which is what we've um, just described, God is outside of science. You can't put God in a test tube. You can't see him in a telescope. We can't measure him in an experiment. Our faith, by contrast, is a revelation of God in history. We believe as Christians that God is there because he has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's revealed himself to us through the people of Israel, through the person of Jesus Christ, as we read in the scriptures and we read about through history. And he's revealed himself through the Holy Spirit who's with us on the earth and we sort of see his action. And because of all those things, we see this revelation of God. But with all of this, we can't put it in a test tube. We can't put him under a magnifying glass and say, aha, I think I can make, uh, make out God in there. We can't measure him. We can't, st- we can't sort of invent a God meter that we put across him and we see how much God is around. And therefore, there is a way that we can say, yes, I guess belief in God is scientific simply because you can't formulate an equation or devise an experiment that measures God. So remember that when people say God is unscientific, you can say, yeah, in one sense he is because you can't do scientific experiments to discover God. The second problem we have is something called scientism or naturalism. Now, I remember a um, a couple of years ago, I went, um, our diocese, for instance, Auburn's diocese, they did this program called Take Your Vicar to the Lab. Now, at first I thought, does that mean what, to do experiments on him or something, to cut him up and that sort of stuff, but gratefully, no. But we went went down to a place near Oxford called the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, and uh, it's where they got a bunch of clever sort of high-energy stuff that they use to zap things and 
ping things and all this sort of stuff with these really, really cool big bits of kit. And it's where there was this, this group called the, and it was the particle physics team worked. And we, we went to meet them. And uh, it was actually there at the Rutherford Appleton Christian Union. And we met this whole group of scientists. And uh, I remember sitting to this guy who was like the deputy head, who was this guy who actually owns Britain's membership of CERN in Geneva. He was a pretty cool guy, actually. And I'm um, just talking to him, and he said, uh, yeah, he said 40% of the staff here are Christians. Get that. So this misnomer that you, have to, you can't be a scientist and a Christian is, is a load of baloney. But some people passionately believe in science and go beyond the boundary of what science really, really gives. And um, there's this thing called scientism, which is a worldview, which basically says, science is my faith. And because science is my faith, there is no need uh, for God. And that is really, I guess, the official view of people like Richard Dawkins. And this whole thing, this whole thing um, scientism, if you like, um, came about back in the 18th century in a period of history called the Enlightenment. Now, Europe went through this huge turmoil at around about the time of the Enlightenment. You'd had the Reformation, you know, which really dented people's um, confidence in the established church. Close on after that came, you know, really a whole sort of rejigging of the nation states. So in France, there was this clever guy called Descartes who thought, well, what can we believe in then if we, you know, the, the church doesn't, you know, seems to be in a mess. Um, you can't believe the nation state. What, what can we believe in? And he started thinking about it. And he came up with that cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. What he came up with is all I can really trust is that that I can work out myself. We can't trust anything else. And this really started a whole, as it were, belief stream. Um, and um, it was a time of philosophy of, 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 um, when, when the physics of the day was called classical physics. It's before people like Einstein and people like that split the atom and all this sort of thing. And, um, and what basically uh, it said was this, that the universe is like this big clockwork machine. That's what people saw, because you know, they, they really hadn't got the technology to go anywhere below that. So really, all there was, you know, if there is a God... All that he did was to wind up, he sort of on this thing, he wound up the universe, he put the earth on its motion around the sun, around the whatever, whatever, whatever we see, and then he departed. Really, there was no need for God. And that sort of enlightenment thinking fed a whole bunch of philosophical streams that ended up in the sort of the, the naturalism or the scientism that we've seen more recently. Or to put it another way, from a lot of these guys, their view is this, you know, why did the chicken cross the road? There was no reason. He didn't need a reason. He just did. So, unfortunately, when modern physics came along, there was a, there was a guy called, um, and a guy called people like Planck and people like this and Niels Bohr. They started to challenge the way the universe was seen. Suddenly, quantum mechanics came along. Suddenly we split the atom. Suddenly there was this revolution in physics which actually showed us that the universe was nothing like the way that people thought. But, and, and actually it started to bring people way back towards a view of God within the created order. However, the people who were wedded to naturalism really didn't like this. And that was one of the, um, that was from, the, uh, from Pol Pot from the Killing Fields in Cambodia. And so and so what they started to do was um, something akin to a Roman, so, um, who was this, this Roman mythology, this, this very bad guy called, called Proscrutes. 
who was an innkeeper, and he was a very bad innkeeper. He would lure he would lure sort of unwary travellers into his, into his place and he would tie them to an iron bedspread, an iron bedstand like this. And if they were too small to fit it, they would stretch them to fit the shape of the, uh, of the frame. And if they were too big and bits hangover, he would cut them off. I know he wasn't a very nice fellow at all. But the point about that is that proscrutian arguments are the same things I think a lot of the new atheists use today. Because they will stretch what is, you know, what is there to fit their view of the world. And when it is challenged, they tend to cut them off and say, sorry, that's not valid. I'm not, I, you know, you're not allowed to talk about that. It's very interesting. When we debate with them, often that's the way they, um, they act. Which is really sort of being unscientific themselves. And the thing that is, is key in this is that um, science has limits. Science has a boundary beyond which, really, it doesn't have any competence to ask. This guy, Sir Peter Medwar, wasn't a Christian. He got the Nobel Prize for Medicine from Oxford University. And he said this, There is indeed a limit upon science which is made very likely by the existence of questions that science cannot answer and that no conceivable advance in science would empower it to answer. I have in mind such questions as, How did everything begin and what are we all here for? The thing is, and when somebody's, um, if you're talking with someone and someone says to you, aha, but science has disproved God, the truth is this. Science can tell us an awful lot about the cosmos, but it cannot tell us whether there is or isn't a God, and it certainly can't tell us why we are here. So, science has boundaries. It has areas of competence. That's no criticism of science, but it's a border that really, really needs to be recognized. So another little chat on your table. Should scientists comment on matters of faith? And at the same time, should church people... Sorry, I didn't uh, gender neutralize that. Missed that one. Should church people comment on matters of science? Just have a minute. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, a buzz of conversation. What, so, so what do people think? Should uh, scientists comment on matters of faith and should church people comment on matters of science? What do people think? Great, that's... Great, so the answer is yes, really good, absolutely. It's why we get into a conversation, absolutely. So we should listen, we should have a dialogue, dead right. One more, one more question, go for it. Absolutely, I think the answer, yes, exactly. What I think Wood said is, is where I'm at, absolutely yes. I'd say for two matters really. One because, you know, th- there needs to be a dialogue between the two. It's the, the enemies of faith, I would say, are the ones who'd like to say it's completely separate. You know, there is a very productive dialogue. And I think particularly at this time, it's because science is actually ethically neutral. You know, it really doesn't have a system of ethics within it. And so it needs people speaking ethical considerations into what can lead into a a very bad place. And that's often the job of the church as well. Anyway, just I'd like to finish with a little bit of, um, just a little bit of canter around. What about physics? And where do physics and faith actually meet? That's old uh, Einstein. And I actually did my, uh, my uh, when I was doing my theology, my dissertation on this, so I won't bore you with the whole 
what it was, 15,000 words or whatever it was, just really because we've got, uh, we're sort of running short of time, two short areas really to start to talk about. And one of the, the reasons why I think, you know, sort of physics shows that the God hypothesis is not an unreasonable one is really in the first area of what we call fine-tuning, of the fact of really why is the universe here in the first place? For many, many years, scientists poured scorn on the idea that we lived in a created universe. The received wisdom was that the universe, universe had always existed. It was something called steady-state theory. Then what happened in the middle of the 20th century? Two scientists from the USA called Penzias and Wilson, they were, they were basically doing some experiments for the, uh, the US government on microwaves and the like, and they were trying to get rid of, when they had this big sort of uh, microwave antenna, this annoying hiss that just seemed to emanate from everywhere in the sky. And they tried everything. They cleaned it, they sort of resoldered all the joints, they replaced all of the electronics, but this wretched hiss would not go away. So they went into it a little bit further and a bit further and a bit further. And what they saw was actually that surrounding everywhere in the universe is this cosmic microwave background. And this was something for scientists which was absolutely revolutionary. If you haven't done physics, you might think, so what? Microwaves are everywhere. I've got one in my kitchen. That's not the sort of microwave we're talking about. This is like the radio waves emanate from everywhere in the same time in the universe. And when they went into it, they basically saw that this was actually the radiation that was left over from this absolute cataclysmic event that happened about 14.7 billion years ago when the universe, when they did their clever mathematics and they said they rolled back the film, was nothing more than a very, very small point, a cosmic singularity. And it was just absolutely, you know, this was absolutely mind-blowing. It completely blew out of, wa- out of the water the scientists who said the universe had always been there and really supported the Christian um, conviction of what we call creation ex nihilo, which is out of nothing. Because what, you know, really is, is commonly held now, the scientific belief, is that all those years ago, before that time, nothing existed. Then suddenly... Time and space exploded into being now. And God said, let there be light is very much is a reasonable hypothesis. Not just that, but the second thing that we see really in this is the whole thing of fine-tuning. It wasn't just the fact that suddenly there was this huge... Oops. Sorry, tech guys. I've just pulled something out. Um, you know, there wasn't this sort of, you know, like this huge explosion and uh, all of a sudden... You know, sort of like, you know, you know, whatever, Adrian appeared or something like that. So, you know, I know something went wrong along the way, but there we go. But, but um, you know, but actually this thing happened with such finely tuned, par- tuned parameters that would allow intelligent life to happen um, sort of on its own. The fact was this. For example, you know, sometimes people say, well, if there is a God, how, how come there's so much stuff in the universe? The fact is this. If there wasn't so much stuff in the universe, after the Big Bang, it would have crunched back into a huge black hole and life would never, ever be able to be sustained. If there was, if there was just a little bit, sorry, too, too much, if there was too little, it would have just expanded forever and ever and stars and planets would never have been able to form. To put it mildly, we would never have been able to exist. So when, when mathematicians, particularly a guy called Roger Penrose, actually went to, um, to actually try to calculate this, there we are, these are just some of the parameters for you. 
um, Scotty and all that sort of thing, he came up with a, with, a, with a view that it was 1 to 10 to the power 123. That's 1 to 10 with 123 noughts sort of, uh, sort of after it. Or to put it another way, if you took a human hair and you laid them out sort of, not lengthways, but sort of widthwise, between London and New York, it's sort of, if one, one, half, one sort of half a millionth of one of the hairs had been different, that sort of thing, then the universe as we know it would not be able to exist. It is that fine tuning. It is absolutely incredible. So much so that there was a, a very famous scientist, a guy called Sir Fred Hoyle. He was at one time, back in the 50s and 60s, the Astronomer Royal. And he wasn't a Christian, but he said this. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics, as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth thinking about. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to be so overwhelming as to put the conclusion beyond doubt. Now, there are many, many other ways, and I could, I could bore you all night. Believe me, for the people who know me, I'm very good at boring people, particularly when it comes to physics. But just to sort of, that's just really a flavor. And just to sum up is to say this. The first thing is this. Scientific method is great for science, but it has a limit. When it goes outside of that into matters of faith, or indeed matters of history or law or other disciplines, it loses its relevance. So if somebody says, but science has da-da-da-da-da, nah, that's a false argument. And if you really want to be posh about it, say, I reject your epistemological basis of your argument. That will shut them up. There we go. The second thing is when you look at things from physics like fine-tuning, the fact of creation out of nothing, but also when we look at things like the physics of paradox and the physics of the end of the universe, lots of it play into the Christian narrative, which is why, for me, who's somebody who's done physics and has got a degree in theology as well, I really don't have a problem with the dialogue between the two. So, is there, you know, our sciences, you know, where are we? Are we friends or enemies? Well, to be honest, really, I think Einstein, who quoted him before, he said this, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. So there we are. That's the, uh, that's the rubber. The final one, though, is the question, has science disproved God? What do you think? Thanks for listening. You're welcome. So I guess some questions now, is it? Here's some questions. Yeah, questions. Yes. You keep uh, referring to creation as being a Christian, a Christian uh, belief system, which is not correct. It's uh, in, it's in uh, Genesis. So um, it's basically the okay. Old Testament. Uh, so there's a big uh, jump from the belief system of a god creating the universe but there's a major jump between god whatever however you conceive him to be or interpret him to be to jesus christ the son of god crucified on a cross and risen after three days there's a major major jump so how do you become a christian when you study physics at a master's level 
I think I'd like to sort of unpick, because you've asked maybe two or three questions within there, or you've, there's two or three points within there. And you're right, surely, it's a Judeo-Christian one, which is the uh, view. And the fact of a creation also goes with other religion. I think what we're t- with other religions too, what we're talking about is having a theistic um, interpretation of why the universe is here versus an atheistic interpretation of why the universe is here, i.e., was a God involved or did we not need a God at all? And, and, and you're absolutely right. If you look at the science, if you really, 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 really look at the science or what have you, really what, it, you know, what, what the whole area of, of what is called natural theology will lead us to is basically the view that there is probably some sort of deistic or theistic, some sort of background which is sort of the reason, the cause for all of this. It doesn't tell us. It tells us that there is probably a God there but what it doesn't say anything is about the nature of God. And so, really, right at the beginning, if you remember my thing, what I said is the thing about, about particularly Christianity is it's a revealed religion. It's about God's revelation. You know, I am, I am totally and utterly with the theologian Karl Barth who says, we know that God is there because he chooses out of his own free will to reveal himself to us. You know, through the scriptures, through the Old Testament, through Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit working with us at the moment. I do agree. And actually, the reason why we're talking about... So I don't think you can sort of study science and use that and say, therefore, God. What it does take away is what I think is the atheistic view that says we do not need a God in order for this universe to exist. Absolutely. No, I agree. Mm. Yeah. Um, agree. Go on. No, I agree. No, I agree. We and agree. Science can't answer what came before the Big Bang. Um, people try. Stephen Hawking tried. And um, but the uh, the best the best analogy I say is that uh, he talks about oh all you need is some fluctuations in the quantum background yada yada yada. The best way analogy to give to that is there's when there's nothing there there's nothing there. It's the difference between having a bank account with nothing in it, which as a vicar is a common occurrence. And, um, and actually there being no bank at all. That's the thing. So. Um, question here. So you're talking about how God reveals himself um, in the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And we know in the Bible it says that God reveals himself through the natural world. So Jesus came into the world. And in our faith there's things like um, healings through prayer and that kind of thing. So God yeah. does seem to affect the natural, yeah. which is in the realm of science. Yeah, so yeah. in that way, can we somehow do science and experiments to prove God or whatever? I don't. I don't think we can. I think I've been. A, I've been. A, you know, and I'm now. You know, in my mid fifties, and I've been a Christian since my mid teens. So that's a long time. And I think, I think with the Lord, there's always a faith gap. You know, he always invites us to take the step out of the boat. And I think that's the answer. So, I mean, I've seen people healed. I've seen, you know, incredibly, you know, sort of powerful words of knowledge, prophetic words, and all that stuff that you say, wow, answers to prayer. If it's not God, then it was someone who's masquerading as him, you know, who looks an awful lot like him. I think the point about science and faith is this, is that what I think we can do is take away the argument that you have to turn off your brain to believe in God, that the God hypothesis is an invalid one because somehow it's not scientific. That's what we can disprove. What we can't prove is, therefore, 
this is, you know, the, the God, the Lord and Father of Jesus Christ, you know, or God revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, whatever. That is, that is revealed to us in a different discipline, you know, through, through history, through experience, through rationale, through, our, through what we've done. And that's how we come to believe, you know, in Christ. But um, I'm saying this, um, so it, it really is, is taking away a negative. That's what I'm saying. Thank Does that make sense? Yes or no? Tell me a bit more. Come back to me on that one. Go on. Go on, I just feel like there must be some kind of experiment you can do with prayer where you can measure if someone who's ill is prayed for and someone who's ill who's not prayed for and if that has an effect or, I don't know, weird things like that, if God affects the natural in that way. Is there not some way we can... I think I'll tell you why I think not is because God is is personal and intelligent. He's he's he. It's a person, not a force. You know, it's not like the force be with you. You know, it's not Star Wars. You know, whatever. So you can say with the force and without the force. I think all we we can do is we can tell the stories of lived lives with answered prayers, with you know study in the history of Christ. You know, and the reasonableness of that. They're the things we can tell. You know that. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we know there are some things we don't understand, you know, like why, why does God answer some prayers and not others, you know. People we prayed for get wonderfully healed. People we pray for we love die, you know. Why did God heal one and not the other? I think the point is there ever has that been, you know, a point of contention. But I think what God does, he invites us to, you know, I, I think he invites us to step out the boat, but it's a safe step, if you know what I mean. It's not an unreasonable or an irrational one. I'm going to squeeze one more question in before we go to some ministry. Yeah. Yeah, I guess following up with something earlier, um, there's a debate I've watched with um, John Lennox and Richard Dawkins, in which Richard Dawkins says, um, I really respect you, John Lennox, because you're not like one of these crazy Christians who believes in the supernatural. Um, you construct your argument for God purely on um, a scientific um, one, one step on another step. And I guess I just wanted to hear your response to that as a Christian who does believe in the supernatural. Um, do you, uh, yeah, what, what goes through your mind when you hear Richard Dawkins say that? How do you, why do you think he's drawn that conclusion that the supernatural is so unbelievable? I, th- I think it, I've, heard him, I've heard the same debate. And I think that really that question goes to the nub of Dawkins' belief system which is a case of there is no God, so the supernatural doesn't exist, so let's not even go there. It's sort of a circular argument, really, because if there is a supernatural God, then of course the supernatural exists, you see what I mean? And, and so my, argument, you know, my, my discussion about Proscrutes earlier on, you know, if it goes about outside of his belief system, he will just cut it off and not allow it in debate. So he would, for example, if you told him a testimony of a healing, he would, he would disregard that and say, well, we don't believe in the supernatural, I'm not going to to discuss that. The great thing about John Lennox, and I love John Lennox's work, and I reviewed, literature reviewed a lot of his work when I did my dissertation, was, you know, was he is, a, he is, a, he is a, a professor of mathematics, okay? So he has taken on the new atheists on their own ground, which does that. So he's come at it that way. But it's, um, it would be a bit like, I don't know, somebody from the Victorian era meeting one of us and us describing television to him, and them saying, Come on, let's have no more of this talk about television. We know it doesn't exist. You know what I mean? It's because it's outside of his worldview. And that is a little bit of the, the problem we have. It becomes a circular argument, if you know what I mean. Um, 
we could we could debate all night. I'm having an amazing time. Um, but Andy's going to stick around a little bit afterwards, um, hopefully, <laughs> so you can grill him. Um, but can we just thank Andy for his time this evening? <laughs> amazing.